Before we get going today, um, I, I just want to kind of step back and think about something. As we're now in our eighth um, sermon in the book of Ephesians, um, and I just want us to think at this point, after hearing what we're hearing and, and having read what we've read, why is Paul writing this book? Um, why is this so important for, for the Apostle Paul that he felt the desire to sit down and write this book, which he not only meant to go to Ephesians, but to Ephesus, but he wanted it to be circled um, and given to Laodicea and circulated among the churches. Why is Paul doing this? Because at this point, the book has progressed in such a way um, where, where he's writing about the church. He's writing about gathering and meeting and encouraging and worship and, and loving as both the local and as the global church of Christ. And, and so not only why is, is Paul so motivated to write about the church to the church, but then why are we... Why was it so motivating that we're still here doing it today? I mean, why are we gathering here? What are we doing in this place? I mean, if someone asked you, um, coming back from the Macklemore concert, being highly enlightened and such, um, they want to, to know why it is you gather at this place where we have ancient, dead, manipulated books and like to still get it, first of all. No, no. Secondly, um, <laughs> Uh, we don't take theological input from Macklemore. Okay, back to the text. Um, well, what, why? Who, who can give a defense of why is it that we're meeting here? Someone said, well, why do, you, why do you do that? I mean, why don't you just do it on your own? Why don't you read your Bible, listen to some sermons, and go to the Macklemore concert tonight? Or why do you not stay home and watch football um, on Sundays? And, and most of us, and me for the majority of my life, I wouldn't be able to give a solid answer for that. Um, and it's, it's like in thinking about why it is that we are gathering, we have to ask ourselves questions. And really, I think the majority of Christians, if they thought about it, would be like we're going to awake for Jesus. Like, and I'm not talking like we're going to awake for Jesus, but a wake, like, like a funeral, like the old English usage of the word where people would come after someone had died and they'd get together and they'd celebrate that person and they'd talk about that person and they'd, they'd laugh and they'd, they'd cry and they'd celebrate and then they'd all go home. Like, is that really what church is? Where we had Jesus, we had this core figure of our faith who came and lived and died, and now just kind of like as a weekly funeral type thing, we gather to celebrate his life and talk about how good he was and, and hope that maybe we could be as good as he was good, and then we leave. Why is it that we do what we do as a church? Because it would be a lot easier that way for us. Like, I see a lot of people um, who, who really don't like the Bible and, and disregard the Bible and disregard what the Bible says, and yet they still go to church. And I'm like, dude, if I don't have to go to church, there's a lot more things I can do with my time. I can be jobless, first of all. Um, but but, but there's, there, there's so many things. It's like we don't need another thing on our plate. It'd be easier if we could all just do it on our own. Like John Muir, the guy who's so famous for, for exploring and, and mapping out Yosemite, um, who, who says that, that nature is just God's cathedral. And the closer you are to nature, the closer you are to God. And in Montana, that's a pretty good argument that I think a lot of people actually believe and put too much credit into. But those aren't compelling enough reasons for us to meet. Those aren't compelling enough reasons for the past 2,000 years that the church has gathered on Sundays, throughout the week, in the evenings, in prayer mornings, prayer meetings, in Bible studies, in celebration, in worship services, in prayer meetings, and all this kind of stuff that's going on. But we have a compelling reason for why we meet, and his name is Jesus. 
And Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 18. He says, um, And I tell you, Peter, um, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so not only is Jesus here where he's like, in church, the Greek word for church, and you guys have probably heard it, ecclesia, it just means assembly. This assembly, Jesus says, on this you, the rock, Peter, I will build my ecclesia. Um, but that was language that the church knew about. Because throughout the Old Testament, there's the prophesied Christ who's coming to bring together a people, to assemble a people, to call together the remnant. And so Jesus is here, and he's foretelling what's going to happen. He says to, to Peter, he says, this is what's going to happen until the kingdom. And, and Jesus' plan for the future was the church, was the gathered people. Jesus makes his intentions for the future very clear. And Jesus died to gather a people, and the gathered people of Christ are the church. That's what the church is. And so why was Paul so obsessed with the church? Because Jesus died for the church. And to ignore the church is to make less of Christ. Is to make less of Christ's purpose on the cross. And with that said, we've seen that Paul, in the book of Ephesians, wants to do something very specific. He's writing for a reason. And oftentimes I think we view the Bible like we view textbooks. Like, why does this guy think I really care about what's going on? I'm being forced to read this by my professor or by my pastor with the guy I'm doing Bible study with. But really... What does he expect me to get out of this textbook? Um, I was that kid. Maybe you guys are like, no, textbooks are beneficial. <laughs> you bought textbooks? Scammed. Um, and so maybe that's coming from my own background. But we read it with these dead eyes. That see, and we just kind of hope that something reaches up out of the Bible and slaps us in the face and stamps it on our forehead and tells us what to do with it. Because we don't actually think the Bible is trying to teach us something. We see it as a duty or we see it as a dead book. But we can't ignore um, the blatancy of what Paul is telling us to do, what he's trying to accomplish in this. In fact, three times already, and we're not even to the end of the third chapter, three times Paul has used the phrase, for this reason. And so there's a purpose to what Paul is telling us. And there's a purpose Paul is writing what he's writing to us. And throughout the first three chapters, Paul is interspersing teaching and then after that teaching, he says, for this reason, I'm teaching you so that. You see, he's teaching theology, but theology is never head knowledge. Theology always has application. Theology is application. There's no such thing as an empty theology, and that's what Paul is saying here. And so just to oversimplify kind of what we've looked at in the last three chapters, the three things that Paul has said for this reason, here are the three things he wants to teach us. In chapter 1, Paul talks about the inheritance we've received in Christ. And he writes, I'm telling you about this for this reason, that you may know the riches of the glorious grace with the rest of the saints. And so Paul's teaching us that we will know as the church, as the, with the rest of the saints, know the glorious riches of Christ. He says, look at who Christ is. While you were dead in your trespasses, Christ died for you. Um, you who before the foundations of the world were predestined in love to be sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the glorious praise of his grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved know that for this reason I tell you know that and the second thing um, in chapter 2 Paul talks about bringing dead people alive you were dead to sin and I made you alive in Christ. And then he says, and then there were once Jews and there were once Gentiles, but in the cross I have made the two one. 
And he said, I'm telling you for this reason that you may see you are being gathered together as my dwelling place. So he's saying all this that happened, this individual salvation that happened inside of you didn't happen to stay an individual salvation. But I did it so that I can gather you together to be my dwelling place. The dwelling place of God is what we saw in chapter 2, verse 22. And we're going to revisit that later. Last um, week, Stephen spoke, and this was the third for that reason that we saw. And in it, Stephen spoke about the mystery of the gospel. And Paul's talking about the mystery of the gospel that brings people together. And he's really going off of what he's established. But then he goes one step further. It's not only that I bring people together to make them into the dwelling place. But I write this for this reason that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be known to all the rulers and authorities. And so here we see a progression. We see that Paul wants to make you into a better Christian, not by teaching you moralism or not by trying you to, trying to, telling you to work harder. He's trying to make you into a better Christian by showing you the wonderful gift God has given you through Christ's church. And he says this, he wants us to know with the church he wants us to know the surpassing riches of Christ. He wants us to be with the church, to be gathered with the church. And he wants us to do with the church as we do church things. Because as, Matt, as Jesus said in Matthew, the gates of hell will not prevail. As the church moves forward, the church does. The church is, but the church also does. And I love Paul's conclusion at the end of last week that um, Stephen shared with us. In verse 13 of chapter he says this, he says, So I ask you, in light of all of the things I have told you about the church, not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And so we see that, that, that Paul is in prison, and he's telling, be the church, do the church, love the church, serve the church. And they're like, Paul, you've started the church and you're in prison. They're like, that's not a compelling reason for us to go out and, and do this. It's like maybe if we got gold stars, that would be good. But chains in Roman prisons, not as good. But Paul says, do not lose heart over this. Why? Or how? How is Paul going to do this? How is Paul going to encourage us in this? And that's what Paul is talking about today. And I love, as, as Kelsey um, just read in the passage, I love how it opens where it says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Because in this, this is Paul's conclusion of his prayer. And it's not like, okay, you guys, hear this. I'm praying for you. Now do it. He says, for this reason, I know you need help. For this reason, I know you can't do it on your own. And so we bow our knees before the Father that he may teach us to know the church, be the church, and do with the church. So I want to pray as Paul is praying for us, um, and then we're going to move on here. Um, Lord, we, uh, we, we pray that, um, first of all, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your word and your scripture, and we pray that Paul's prayer for us um, it manifests itself in our body tonight, that, that it resonates in our heart, and that it moves us to do what you've called us to do in Christ. And we love you for what you've done on the cross. We're grateful for what you've freed us to do for the church. And we're encouraged that you haven't left us to do it alone, but you've given us not only the Holy Spirit, but a body of believers um, to do it to the fullest of our potential. And, I, and we love you, Lord, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So I'm a person, um, I like to do challenging things. 
um, and not and I don't normally don't like complete the challenge, but I like to at least attempt challenging things. And I remember I was at a friend's house once, and they said, you know, it's impossible to to squeeze an egg and pop it if the egg is like lengthwise in your hand to just do it with one hand. Um, and so I was like. <laughs> I worked out in high school, and so I'm like, I can do this, and so um, I get it, and, and, I, and she brings me an egg, and I try it, and for the life of me, I can't get the egg to do anything. I'm squeezing it, um, and it's just not, and I'm yelling, and I'm yelling so loud, I made their little, like, one-and-a-half-year-old just start screaming, um, and so this happens, and, and I'm like, apparently you can't break an egg from end to end by squeezing it in your hand. Um, and so then I had some, some kids over to my house, or some friends, and I'm like, guys, did you know you can't break an egg when you squeeze it end to end? And they're, they're like, I worked out in high school. And so like, they get the egg, um, and, and, and the guy grabs it, and it's like, and just like all over my kitchen. And then me, the right thing to do was let me clean this up. The wrong thing to do was no way, and grab an egg. Um, and so I grab an egg, and I'm like, no, and just like all over the kitchen again. Moral of the story, you can't break a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> but if you convince your friend it's a real egg, they'll spray egg all over their kitchen. And that was, that was, that was neat. Um, and I remember one thing, just speaking of impossible things, <laughs> Uh, there's like late laughter happening, and that's always good. Um, is, is, uh, I don't know how many of you have taken like spiritual gifts tests. If you've been involved in a church or any like ministry type things, um, they often require you to take them. And I was taking one once, and, and it just asked a, a st stupid question. And, and the question was, do you like attempting impossible things? And I was like, well, if you, if you tell me it's impossible, and it's truly impossible, then no. It, I don't. It's impossible, and I'd rather do something with a probability and an outcome that's beneficial um, to all this. And then I remembered, and, and I did this today because I was going to reference back to that. Just be like, man, I, I don't ever do try impossible. If you know it's impossible, why do you do it? And then I thought back about my childhood, and I've been raised in the church for forever. And because you get disillusioned when you've been raised in the church forever, your fantasies are a little weird. Um, and, and, and I remember at my cabin, I legitimately thought I could walk on water. And I was like, if I believe enough that I can walk on water, I didn't. I didn't walk on water. And then, um, because like, and again, this goes back to like, like I remember when the Matrix first came out and the Christians were like, should we watch this? Should we not watch it? And like some people were like, this is great. And some people were like, this is Satan. Um, and I, I was that kid. And I, was, I wasn't very young when the Matrix came out. I was probably in junior high or something. And I remember staring at a spoon, <laughs> convinced I could bend it. And, and I was just like, no, there's just... I can do it. I can bend it. And I have this like Christianese like bad theology behind me that's telling me I could do that. Um, and so I do try impossible things. Silly, stupid, dumb things that I know are impossible. I do try them. I attempt to do impossible things. But I can tell you the place I realized as I was looking at Paul's text, the place I try impossible things the most is in my heart. Because so often I get the idea that I can restore my worship on my own. That I can fix my sin issues on my own. 
that I can worship better on my own or that I can grow as a Christian better on my own, that I can study uh, God and know God better on my own. But there is nothing more impossible than progress for a Christian who sees himself as self-sufficient. That's the true impossibility. Is if you see yourself as being self-sufficient and able to do everything on your own, the most impossible thing for you to do is to progress in your faith. Because that's not what God had designed us to do. And that's why I love how Paul opens this scripture. And again, we, we just read it, but verse 14. Um, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And see, Paul has asked us that, that we come as the church, um, or that we gather as the church, that we know the church, that we come to be as the church, and that we come to do as the church. But he knows that you can't do any of that on your own. You can't become part of the church. You can't sustain the church. You can't do the church. You can't know as the church knows on your own. And as an individual Christian, you don't have that power. But God does. And that's why the culmination of Paul's conclusion in the first part of Ephesians, the culmination of what has been his prayer for the first three chapters, opens with um, another supplication. For this reason, I pray. Because I've challenged you, I pray. And there are three specific reasons that Paul, or three specific ways Paul is challenging us that emphasize why he's praying for God to work a work inside of us. And we see the first reason in Ephesians 3, verses 15 through the first part of 17. It says, From whom every family and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so here, Paul, to, pick it, to, to read it once more, he says, I'm praying for you that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts and through faith. And see, there's a pretty generic Christian phrase in there um, that you may have heard, that Christ may dwell in your heart. And you've, you've heard all sorts of different ways people say that. Does Christ live in your heart? Have you accepted Jesus into your heart? And all these things about Christ living and dwelling in us. And we know what that means. We really do. We know what that means. And we know what Romans 8, 7 says about that because we talked about it this week in community groups. Romans 8, Romans 8 7 says this, For the mind that is, ho- that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then verse 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so we know what it means when it says Christ has dwelled in your heart because we know we can't do that on our own. Our heart is hostile towards God. We are born into sin and our sin does not want to submit to God. It cannot submit to God and it will not ever please God on its own. So when we say Christ dwells in our hearts, we know what it means. We know that Christ's death has killed the hostility of our sin. On the cross, Christ died And as Paul says in Ephesians, he killed the hostility that dwells in your heart. He killed the sin and he became your savior. He has given himself to you as your savior. And so for Christ to dwell in your heart is a sign of faith. That's what it means. 
For Christ to dwell in your heart is a sign of faith, and that's exactly the point that Paul is making here. You see, to be a Christian means that Christ dwells in your heart, that sin is defeated, that death is destroyed, and by grace you have been saved through faith. We believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We know what it means, but do we know why it matters? Because that's the important thing for application. Why does it matter? When it comes to, why does it matter when it comes to the church? Because that's the context that Paul's writing to here. Why does it matter for the church? Why is Paul praying this? Why is this Paul's urgent prayer for the church that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? And Paul's asking the church to do some heavy lifting here. He's like, I want you to do the things that I'm in prison for and rejoice in it. Really, that's what Paul's saying to these people. And, and if I'm reading this, I think Paul's prayer was good, but it should have stopped earlier. See, I want Paul's prayer to say that accord, I pray that according to the great riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's a better prayer if I'm facing prison. It's like, just give me the power, um, give me strength, like let the Holy Spirit do its thing so I'm powerful, so I'm strong, so I'm bold, so I'm courageous, and all of that. That would have been a great prayer for a church that was scared. That would have preached really easy in here, that we just pray that God gives us this mystical, magical power and strength. But that's not where Paul stops, because he prays that we receive strength and power through the Holy Spirit in our inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that's an important continuation. Because what Paul is saying there is that he knows that the greatest gift of power, the greatest ground for strength, isn't power or strength on its own, but a faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest power the church has today is a faith in Jesus Christ sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is the greatest power, the greatest strength, the greatest asset the church has today is faith in Christ. And see, it, it doesn't make sense when we think, because it's like we get these words like power and strength and faith is just like, uh, it's like, like if a genie popped up, he's like, you could have three, you could have one thing. You could have power, strength, or faith. We'd probably be like, I'll take one of the first two and I'll work on this last one on my own. I got that covered. But, but never is power or strength isolated from a source. Like, think about it. There's always a reason behind somebody's power. And the easiest thing for us to, to, to think about are superheroes. Superheroes never have a detached power. It's not that some guy pops up on the scene and has this innate wellspring of power inside of him that in and of himself, he is the source of his strength. Superman wasn't powered by default. He was powered by the nature of his home planet, Krypton. I had to look that up. I'm not a major nerd, okay? But um, <laughs> Spider-Man wasn't powered by himself. He was powered by a radioactive spider. Batman even was powered by his wealth. If Batman wasn't afforded huge quantities, he'd have some solid willpower and some beautiful pecs, but he wouldn't have, <laughs> he wouldn't have the majority of the things he used in that. You see, all of that is, they're all powered, Superman's powered by Krypton, Spider-Man's powered by a spider, Batman's powered by wealth, Christians are powered by the gospel. 
That's the source of your power. And the gospel is something you believe in. That is your power as the church. Faith in Christ. Christ dwelling in your hearts, richly, boldly, in an abiding way, is the only thing, the only thing that will cause the church to do what the church is called to do. The only thing that moves the church forward is that Christ dwells in the heart of the individual through faith. The only thing that accomplishes mission is faith. Nothing else will. Your girlfriend won't. Your aspirations won't. Your desires won't. Your skills won't. Your passions won't. Your zeal won't. Your morality won't. But Christ will. Christ will accomplish in his church when he dwells in the heart of his church. Never take that for granted. Never think that you learn the gospel and you believe in Christ, but there's something else that's a greater power in Christianity. There is no greater power than the gospel. There is no greater message. There is no greater strength. There is no greater source of wisdom and power and might and awe than a faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The object of ultimate importance for the church is that Christ dwells in the members of the church. Paul prays for that. Then he prays for the second thing we see in verses 17b through the first part of 19. So again, picking up verse 14 to read down, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, and then it picks up in 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which, that surpasses all knowledge. So the second thing Paul prays for is that we may have strength to know Christ as the church. Um, and not that we know Christ as being the church, but we as the church know Christ. And, and really, it's, it's verses like this and silly spiritual gifts tests that frustrate me. Because I'm a very, as I mentioned earlier, like I like to do doable, obtainable things you can observe. There are results. I could see that. That's good. Let's move on here. But Paul is praying for us here to do the impossible. And, and really, like, like we could, theologically, it's impossible to come to Christ on your own without the Holy Spirit working. The the, we, we, we get that theologically, but this is like really impossible. He's saying, I want you, in the same sentence, I want you to know the unknowable, is what Paul's telling us to do. He says, I want you to have strength to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That just blow, that, that frustrates me. And see, there's a long list of things I'll never know in my life. Like, I, I don't know how quantum physics works. I don't know why the chem building ever let me come inside of it to teach. Because I'm not in this building. I have no credibility. I don't know it. I'll never know it. Um, I'm past the stage of knowing it. I also don't know how the internet works. It's, it boggles my mind. It's like somehow, somewhere, there's a room full of information that they pump to us. And like in it is Charlie the Unicorn and all this stuff that comes out. I don't understand the internet. And if I don't understand the internet or physics or chemistry, there's no way I can know the surpassing love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It's just like, Paul, just the internet. Let's start there and move up. But Paul dives headlong because the church is pushed to something more. I can't know 
the surpassing knowledge of the love of Christ. I can know the knowledge that I know of Christ in my own life. I can know that at one point I was dead in hate, I was dead in unbelief, I was dead in lust. I can know that I was ten times the sinner than I ever could have told you I was. I can know that Christ saved me while I was hostile and dead in my sin. He died for me while I was yet a sinner. This is what I can know as an individual Christian. But the church can know more. And see, this is why I love things like this. Because as a church... Each and every one of us come here and come to Sovereign Hope on Sunday and gather at MAC and CLC and Zootown and all those churches around Missoula and around the world and they come with their own scars of sin but their own stories of redemption. And this is why it's important to read carefully what Paul is saying here because so many times you miss the point of this text. Look at what Paul just read again in verses 17 through 19. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, you can't know. You cannot comprehend. You cannot fully grasp the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ on your own but we can comprehend it with all the saints. That's what Paul's asking us to do. He's not saying, I want you to have the strength to comprehend on your own what is the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I want you to have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints, with the full picture of God, with the whole realm of those who are saved, what is the height and length and breadth of the love of Christ which surpasses all understanding. You see, my favorite holiday was, is Easter. It never used to be. I felt like that was lame points if Easter was your favorite holiday. Um, but really, as, a, as, a, as I've been on staff at a church and as, as I've grown older and, and, and started a family, it's like, man, I would give up every holiday if Easter could be twice a year. <laughs> if we could have that celebration more often. Because you get, you get your whole church coming together. You get friends and family and relatives and you come to church and you celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as a whole. And there's just something unique about when the church gathers to worship the redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's something where you get those goosebumps and you hear the people singing and you feel, as the pastor's preaching, you feel the words resounding in that congregation. It made me think this morning of Psalm 145, verse 3, where it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable where we, we, we gather together and those things which are unsearchable about God, we are now praising together. We gather to praise the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the beautiful thing is that even though, as, as the psalmist just said, they are unsearchable, and even as Paul just said, they are unknowable, and even as he says in Philippians, they surpass all understanding, we as the church in the thrones of worship know it. We feel it. We see it. We experience it in the body of believers gathered who have lived it. 
who Christ has established himself as Lord in their, in their lives. And because of that, we as a church celebrate a greater salvation than you could ever celebrate on your own. Because as Paul said, he didn't raise an individual. He raised a church. And I love this because so many times um, you get people who say, I just need that. I need to, I, it's, it's like I, they're longing for an affirmation from God. They're, they're longing for their Christianity that maybe at one time was a flame and now it's kind of died down. And they want that. I want to feel that. I want to feel the love of Christ. And yet so many times those people withdraw from church and withdraw from other Christians and feel like they have to get it back here before they come back to the assembly. But what Paul is saying, it says, do you want to be affirmed? In Christ? Do you want to know the unknowable? Do you want to see the beauty and vastness of the love of Christ? You can't do it on your own, but you get it every time you come into church. You want your heart set aflame for God? Go to church. Gather with Christians. Read the Bible together. Pray together. Fellowship together. And in mysterious ways that we cannot comprehend, Christ, Christ's unknowable riches are understood in real, tangible ways as a corporate people of God gather to celebrate. And Paul is praying that you, as the church, when you're gathered together in this place, that you know things you can't know on your own. That you see the love of God from the preached word and from what we worship together in song and from what we see in each other and what we talk about and the connection we have in Christ, which is greater than any connection you will ever have to anybody on the face of the earth, that in that you will know the love of Christ and be rooted and grounded in love. That's the second thing Paul prays for. The third thing is seen um, just briefly at the end of verse 19. And again, so it makes sense. Verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And see, if anyone has ever dabbled in Christianity, I've seen a lot of people um, come in and, and stick around with Christianity for, for even like a few weeks, and then they kind of go away. Um, but, but in those weeks, people want the fullness of God. Like that's part of our culture. If we can ever have more of something, we want more of something. There's not a single Christian around the world who, if you say, are you satisfied with, with the fullness of God in you? Or they'd be like, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. They all want more. They want the fullness. They don't want the halfness. They don't want the three-quarterness. They want the fullness of God. But so many times in our pursuit of the fullness of God, we start doing impossible things again. We try to do it on our own. We spend time away in nature. We listen to worship music, which is good. We listen to podcasts, which is good. We read Christian books, which are good. We study the Bible on our own, which is good. And all of these things are good. But none of those things allow you to be filled with the fullness of God. Because it wasn't meant for an individual thing. It's God's church that he has raised. And Paul has been hitting this throughout the book so far. In Ephesians 2.22, which I referenced earlier, he says this, In him you are building, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, there's a both and here thing. God's dwelling place is where we're going to be one day. Yet in the church, God dwells. God dwells in his church. When I dwell in my house... My, I, I'm in my house. I'm not not in my house when I'm in my house. There's your physics lesson for the day. Um, 
When God is in his house, when he is dwelling in the church, it is the fullness of God, the, the fullness of God that we can ever experience on this side of death in the church. And then in, in um, chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, he says this, And he, that's God, put all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and gave him as a head over all things, giving him to the church, who is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, it's not this thing where like we've decided like, hey, you know, I get, I love my, I love my job. I love that I get to come um, and, and work with students. I love that I get to preach the gospel and I really want to find a way to manipulate scripture to say that we should seek out the church. Man, the Bible is full of things you can't avoid, which talk about how the fullness of God, the plan of God, the purpose of Christ, the bride of Christ is the church. The fullness of God is in the church. And this is actually what we're going to discuss this weekend um, at Sovereign Hope. For those who have been with us, we're in a six-week series called The King and His People, looking at the whole story of the Bible. Um, and this Sunday, last Sunday, we looked at the work of Jesus, and this Sunday, we're looking at the church of Jesus. And so you're going to get this um, again there. And we see in Colossians that, that, that God says, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And Christ in the fullness dwells in his church. And I could spend a whole sermon talking about how that looks like. Like you, I, I am a, I'm like a one-tool player in anything. I've got one thing I do well, and there are some people who've got two things they do well. But the problem is, is to be a team, you need to have a, a team that does 80 things well. And that's why the fullness of Christ dwells in the church, because we all have different skills and gifts and talents and passions that when brought together, we work better together because that's the way God designed it to be. But I'm not going to go into that now because you're going to hear it this weekend. And next week in community groups, you guys are going to be talking about that. And it's going to be a great discussion on what it looks like for you to be the church. But I think it's important to sit back and look at what Paul is saying here. Because he wants to encourage us through prayer in all of these things. He wants us to have a better, something better than a power. He wants us to, to have, a, to, as a church, know the unknowable riches. He wants us as a church to be filled with the fullness of God. And I'm telling you, if this happens, if the church knows, if the church is, and if the church does, you won't be able to keep Christians out of the church and you won't be able to keep the gospel in the church because it will so saturate, so thrill, so overwhelm you with the goodness and power and majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we do everything better. We gather better together, but not in an isolating, inward way, but in an outward-focused, evangelistic, Christ-exalting, worship-inducing, nation-reaching way. Because we have seen the unknowable love of Christ, the surpassing love of our Savior, and because we have seen the fullness of God in the church and fellowship as a body of believers. You know why I love these identity videos that the church is putting out right now, those 30-second things? Because I get to celebrate somebody else's story of salvation. That's the best thing a church can do at baptisms and at testimonies where we rejoice in the very same act we were saved in. And Paul knows that right now. 
He knows that if the church gets this, if Ephesus and all these churches he's hoping this reaches, if the church, this new church, this church in hiding, this this outskirt church, this persecuted church, if they get this, they get everything. If Christ dwells in their hearts, if they know the love of Christ, and if they see the fullness of God, he knows that there's little that stands in their way, and that's why Paul is praying over you today. And so here's what I want us to do. Because it's really easy to um, hear, a, hear a message um, and, and get inspired. It's harder to hear that when I'm preaching. But, uh, but, but to get inspired and to be like, I'm going to do something. But that's the thing with Paul right now is the doing comes after the praying. Things have to happen that only God can produce. And then the doing comes naturally. And so here's what I want us to do. I have, um, and, and guys will pass them out during the closing worship set, um, little cards. And, and I'm calling it the Ephesians um, prayer challenge here. Um, and what I want us to do is we've got three days until Sunday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, okay? Um, in case you don't know how to read calendars. And, and we saw three things that Paul was specifically praying for in the conclusion of his opening prayer to, to the people um, of Ephesus. And what I want us to do um, is, and I have them timed. I, I put um, Friday at 5 o'clock p.m. And what I want people to do in here, I want you to schedule an event in your phone for tomorrow at 5, wherever you are. Some of us, may, may, maybe that's how we'll open Ultimate Frisbee um, tomorrow for those who aren't there, even if you're at work. We're going to pray that Christ will dwell in the hearts of his faithful church, starting with you. And then Saturday at 9.30 a.m., we're going to have an alarm that says, we pray that Christ knows the unknowable love of Christ in the fullest detail. And then Sunday morning at 9.45, before the first service at church happens, before too much of the day gets going on, before I, I pull out my idols of football um, and, and, and we get just burdened by the, the progression of the day, I want us to pray that, that as we're gathered today, we are blessed and encouraged by the fullness of God in our midst. Because the church won't go forward without a praying church. The prayers are the knees of the church that allow us to run and push and jump and walk. And so I want us to pray for this because there's nothing better for the Christian than doing the church well, than praying for the church, than seeing what Christ has done in your own life and gathering as a church because it's not simply a place we gather. It's also something we do throughout the week as we fellowship with believers in a fallen world. And when the church starts doing these things, the forces of darkness will tremble. Because Christ enabled that change on the cross, but in giving us the Holy Spirit after his resurrection, Christ proved he's going to bring that change through the church. This is God's plan. This is our duty. And so I want us to do this and I want us to spread the goodness of God through the church. I want us to have God dwell richly inside of us. I want us to be so empowered and inflamed by the love of Christ that dwells with us through faith that we are strengthened to do the church and be the church and know the church and pray for the church and speak for the church and love for the church and serve for the church because the church is the servant of Christ and Christ is what the world needs. And so... In closing here, um, the worship guys uh, can come up, um, and, and I just want to read for us um, the prayer, the full prayer. And we didn't get to verses 21 through 20 through 21 
Yeah, you guys can come up now if you want. <laughs> 20 through 21, but I want you to listen to the benediction he gives at the end of this. So it's up on the screen too. And this is his prayer over you and our prayer for, for ourselves and for every church um, in this world. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through, with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we pray that tonight. We pray that because of the power you've placed in us, uh, doing things that we can't even imagine, doing more than we can ever ask, God, you powerfully impact your church, that the Holy Spirit strengthens us in faith, not so that we can lift heavier burdens or that we can walk longer distances or that we can sing at louder octaves or that we can speak in places that there is no words, but that we can have faith. Because a faith gives a power to the church that nothing else will. And Lord, I thank you that you affirm that by showing us the love of Christ in the church. And you send us by giving us a picture of the fullness of God in the church. To him who is able to do far much more than we ever ask, according to the power that's at work within us, to him be glory and honor in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.